In order to do the kind of work I do in my neighborhood, I need to understand the language of the everyday local resident, which I am one of. I need to understand the language of the organizer and the leaders in the communities who see things maybe a little bit deeper than the everyday resident, which I am one of. I need to understand it from the faith-based leader perspective, of which I am one of those leaders. But then also, I am an activist. So I speak that language, right? But I also am a partner with the 7th District Community Assisted Policing Strategy, and I can't pick a side. Hi, you're listening to Contact Chai with me, Rabbi Lizzie Heideman. Today, my guest is Jonathan Brooks, or Pasta J, as he is affectionately known by the congregants of Canaan Community Church in West Englewood, where he serves as the senior pastor. A lifelong Chicagoan with a passion for community investment and development, Pasta J's ministry focuses on youth development, holistic health, art and music training, as well as restorative justice practices and care for the incarcerated and their families. He's a writer and a deep thinker, often sought after by blogs and media outlets, and he recently published a book, Church Forsaken, Practicing Presence in Neglected Neighborhoods. A few weeks prior to our conversation, Pastor Jay gave a sermon at Mishkan about the verses in Jeremiah encouraging the Israelites to build homes and make gardens while they were in exile. As we dwell in the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, the most solemn day on the Hebrew calendar with themes of exile and loss. Pastor Jay and I spoke about exile, community investment, trauma, solidarity, and how to find hope in what feels like a very dark time. Take a listen. So a minute ago, you took me on a short but expansive journey of your, your story, which was growing up in West Englewood, thinking you needed to leave that this was a place to be exiled from, go somewhere else. But in fact, this is the place that God has brought you to to lean into and to fall in love with, again, as an adult and as a church leader. Can you tell me what this role places you in the position to do and what you love about that? I think what it puts me in a position to do more than anything is it helps me be able to see the fullness of the place where I am. Um, growing up in the neighborhood, because of the narrative was about escapism, I saw it mostly through its brokenness. So all of the pain, all of the hurt, the uh, poverty, the um, frustration around inadequate education, the lack of um, you know fresh and organic foods and opportunities to get good healthy food in our neighborhoods, the uh, lack of economic development, and the fact that there's very few resident-owned businesses or businesses, period, in neighborhoods like mine, other than liquor stores and fast food restaurants and all of this. So those are the things that I was taught as a kid to key in on, which is why you got to get out of here. This is a place to escape. Look, no one cares about it. It's a neglected neighborhood, right? Like, I, I was right. I, like, I, I didn't choose to be in Inglewood as a kid. As an adult, I'm making the choice to be here, which is a very different way of living. And so now I use the term, I get to wear my bifocals. Like that's the way I, I, I kind of explain it. So I don't only see the brokenness in this place where I am, but I now see the beauty. And I don't only see the beauty to the neglect of the brokenness and I don't see the brokenness to the neglect of the beauty. I have to wear my bifocals every day so that I know that every place and every person both displays the glory of God and the brokenness that humanity brings. And if I can't see one or the other, then there's something wrong with my vision, not the place or the people that live there. 
I, I have Christians cracking up when I say this one. I, I feel like my uh, Jewish brothers and sisters will crack up at it too, right? Think of this. I don't believe God looks down from like God's spot <laughs> and, and sees like our neighborhoods and sees like a neighborhood on the north side with microbreweries and restaurants and nice houses that says, now that's what I meant when I said flourishing on earth. Like they got it together. I want everybody to live by the microbreweries and the nice cafes. And God does not look down on West Inglewood and see like liquor stores and, and people sitting on the corner and like the abandoned buildings and go, oh my God, that's just a terrible place. That's not what I was thinking about when I created humanity. This is terrible. No, God sees the fullness of both of our places. He can see behind the windows of those high-rise apartments. He can see uh, what's going on in the minds of those people sitting in those breweries who are drinking alcohol to try to get rid of and not think about all the pain in their life. And he also sees the resilient, beautiful families that are living in my neighborhood. Amazing teachers who come here day in and day out, despite the lack of resources to make sure our children have the best education possible. God sees the world differently than we do. And it becomes our responsibility to try to see the world the way God does. And that's why I look for brokenness and beauty everywhere. So I go on the north side looking for the brokenness, not just the beauty. So let me ask you, in this moment, a lot of people in America are awake to a situation. A lot of white people in America are awake to a situation that Black Americans have been very awake to for a very long time. And I'm wondering in this moment, and specifically in Chicago as well, how are you holding and leading with the love of what is beautiful and also the recognition of the brokenness? You know, when I think of how my ancestors survived slavery, chattel slavery, being whipped, being, you know, sold, separated from family, all of those things, right? Like the only way you can do that is to focus on whatever is beautiful before you because it's so much broken. And so in this moment, I think, there has been a recognition that we have to embrace that these systems are broken. The way policing happens in our country is inequitable. It is racially biased. It is not right. And Black people have been enduring that for as long as we've been a part of this country, as long as we like for 400 years, right? And at the same time, the resiliency, the fact of hope, the fact that we believe something can change if we'll fight for it is the beauty that we have to hold on to. And so I'll be honest, like I'll be extremely honest in this moment. It's been really, really hard for me. It was difficult because I speak many, many languages. In order to do the kind of work I do in my neighborhood, I need to understand the language of the everyday local resident, which I am one of. I need to understand the language of the organizer and the leaders in the communities who see things maybe a little bit deeper than the everyday resident, which I am one of. I need to understand it from the faith-based leader perspective, right, of people who are saying, yes, we understand fighting, but there, there's a way in which you need to do it that's honorable and integrous and, and, and represents the God that we serve, of which I am one of those leaders. But then also, I am an activist, right? I've, I've, when Laquan McDonald was shot uh, 16 times by a police officer in his back, I was right there in front of the First District Police Station screaming and yelling that this is unjust. So I speak that language, right? But I also am a partner with the Seventh District Community Assisted Policing Strategy, in which I work with them to help them work with residents and, to, to, and, and pray at roll call and, and try to get them to come out and, and meet neighbors. And, and I can't pick a side, right? Like, I couldn't just be mad. And you know what? I felt like I had nowhere to place my anger. And so 
I spent four days just in a dark hole, really not responding to anyone, not answering calls. I just wasn't in the headspace. So yeah, I've come out of that hole a little bit um, and now I've gotten into an organizing space of what's next, but it's been difficult. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, it does really sound like pouring so much of yourself into so many different experiences of, you know, being a Chicago and being a resident, you know, taking it from the perspective of community-based organizer or faith leader or cop and actually not being able to villainize any one of those groups because you're part of all of them and also not being able to fully inhabit any one of those identities because also you share a bunch of others. And that level of empathy with humanity can be completely depressing when you see so much discord between the different parts of humanity, i.e. the different parts of yourself. So on the Sunday after, did you just say like, sorry guys, church is canceled? Did you preach that morning? I preached that morning about Jesus at uh, cleansing the temple. Um, and I called it the first Christian protest because there's a there's a translation by a guy named Eugene Peterson, theologian who passed away a couple of years ago, called the Message Bible. And it's very, very paraphrased in everyday language. But what I love about the way he ends that passage about Jesus cleansing the temple is he says, and after Jesus drove out the merchants, there was room for the poor to get in. Mm. And um, I use that version because I wanted people to understand that sometimes you got to tear stuff up in order to um, make room for those who actually should have been there in the first place. And so I'm 100% with folks who are ready to flip over tables if it'll make room for the poor to get in. That's what I preached about. And then that evening, tables got flipped. Um, you know, a couple of things. We have a cafe that we opened up in the neighborhood about seven years ago. And uh, my, un my background is in architecture. I think I told you that before. My undergraduate degree is in architecture. And so I did a lot of the designing of the cafe and very intentionally wanted to go against the typical aesthetic of our neighborhood, which is roll top doors, bars, gates, and things to protect the business from the people. And I was like, this is the people's business. I don't want that. So we have beautiful play glass, the whole front of it is all glass, right? There's no bars at night. The lights are still on. It's illuminated. It's the only thing on the block that looks like that. And so we were extremely fearful, right? Like we have no protection. There's no bars. There's no roll top gates. There's nothing. And so me and the manager went to like be there and like make sure nothing happened. And that was very scary. But just that morning I was saying, tear it up. And then when it was something I've worked on, something that felt like my baby it was like, but well, wait, 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 wait. Like there's, there's, there's so much energy and sweat and tears that went into building this, like for you, right? <laughs> don't, don't destroy it. Um, so I felt like I was at war with myself. And so now what, where are you sitting within your own multiplicity of, you know, allegiances, identities, but also, like, what are you advising your people? Yeah. So there's a, a passage of scripture where Jesus is, is talking to his disciples about, like, about to send them out to be his representatives. And he's like, I'm about to send you out as sheep among wolves. I know that. Like, things are not going to be good for you. Uh, but I need you to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Or as wise as snakes and innocent as doves. And so this past Sunday, I, 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 my sermon was titled Snakes with Wings, 
because I've gotten to the point now where I've recognized that protesting is good, continual protest, hashtags, all the stuff, Black Lives Matter being supported, all of that is good. And we also need people to step into the long-term role of organizing to see systemic change happen over the long term, knowing that there are people who will try to hold on to power and unjust systems at all costs because of how much it benefits them. A couple of things come to mind as you were just speaking. One of the definitions of tikkun olam, which is Hebrew for putting the world back together, like repairing the world, which is considered, you know, in most Jewish circles, like a core value, tikkun olam. And the kind of vision of it is that the world once upon a time reflected a kind of perfection, you know, and like God's essence just radiated through everything. And then it was actually so radiant that the whole thing shattered. And so that the world is now filled with these shards of godliness and radiance, but that require piecing back together. And so the job of all of us walking around this world is to basically put the puzzle piece back together and and build a world again that is radiant and whole. And also, if you've ever put anything that's shattered back together, you get cut. <laughs> like it's it's actually messy and it's, you know, it sounds like a beautiful metaphor, but it's actually dangerous and you can injure yourself, you know, and people can get harmed in the process of this tikkun olam. It's like speaking as a white person in this moment. It's like, I'm I'm worried about doing it wrong. Like, what can I do? Oh, wait, what if the piece I'm putting out there is the wrong piece? And I'm, have you encountered that already? Uh, I'm usually telling them to follow. Um, I'm telling them that there are young people who are hitting the streets. There are leaders of color who have been writing, speaking, making music, uh, talking about this for forever. And to look at to start looking at their timelines, to start looking at their bookshelves, to start looking at their podcast choices, to start looking at the music they listen to, the movies they watch, the documentaries that that they've consumed and ask themselves, who am I really following? Um, You want to put the world back together, but when you have no clue how it should have looked, then one of the things you'll do is you'll you'll make the situation worse. I I, I got an example too that I think would be a good Hebrew example. It's the, it's the example of Moses, right? Um, and Moses as an adult. Moses is now a part of Egypt. He's a part of Egypt royalty. He's now raised that way. That's all he's known, even though um, he was raised by his own mom and sister and all that stuff. But now he's been in the palace. And he knows that life. And when he finally realizes that he's a part of the oppressed group, all he wants to do is fix it. He just wants to put the world back together. Let's just make it right. And in his rush to like put things back together without any real context, real understanding of the Hebrew story, the narrative, some time away to really process and think, he just makes it worse. And that's what happens when we rush in to try to fix things. God had to get, had to sit Moses down, right? He had to sit him down and say, you don't know what's really going on. You get out, you be amongst the marginalized. We see you to the Midianites. Get on out there, understand what it's like to not be in the palace for a while. Why don't you go out there and marry someone from a totally different culture and understand something totally different? Then I can bring you back when you understand what it's like to be on the bottom instead of the top. And I say to my white folks here in America, you've got to listen to people who've been on the bottom. You got to follow their voices, you got to follow their instructions, and not do before you've learned and listened and been with. 
as a black man, I'm telling you right now, you want to understand who's been marginalized the most in this country? And that could be up for grabs too, because we can get into the LGBTQ community and that's a whole nother conversation. But black women, right? Um, women of color in general have really strong voices that need to be listened to. Um, right now I've made the decision that all that I'm reading, all that I'm listening to, all I'm following online is, uh, is women of color, and especially black women. I'm thinking of the way that people consume social media. And what I heard you saying a moment ago was pause, read, take in. You don't actually need to fix anything right now. You don't need to show people how woke you are right now. Like, take a moment to just hear. So I think that that's, that's sort of the challenging thing is, you know, how long of a, of a pause to take in is one really afforded to take? It feels like the moment calls for immediacy. And yet we all know that this is going to be work that's going to take a long time and it's going to take endurance and commitment. Like racism has longevity and we're going to have to match it with equal persistence. I think I wanted to say like the, the immediacy as well as long term, right? Like we have to learn how to hold that juxtaposition because the truth is this is an immediate problem. There is immediacy to it. Like people of color have been waiting for a long time for this to actually become something important to someone other than them. And at the same time, we're not looking for this to be a moment, we're looking for it to be a movement. And so um, if, you're, if you're in this for the movement, then the immediacy um, is very real, but it's the immediacy of you being educated. Right? Like that is the beginning step because to get into the fight without education means that you're only in it for a moment. And that's not what we need. There's sort of a growing awareness among Jews. Now, I would say like a sort of psychology of trauma that gets passed on generation to generation. Some of that is like built into the tradition. For example, the holiday that I described to you earlier, Tisha B'Av. I think with the idea being that for the rest of the 364 days of the calendar year, you really try not to dwell in that place of trauma. That said, when you have something like the Holocaust in Europe or anti-Semitism in America, having, you know, somebody walk into a synagogue and just start shooting indiscriminately with a rifle, with a semi-automatic weapon of war. It wakes up every every instinct within you that's like, see, they're they're coming for us again, you know, and then sends you right back into that sort of that place of fear and reactivity. And that makes it very hard to listen to the experiences of others, I think we've discovered. I think science has borne this out, that if you're too much in your own story, in your own narrative of trauma, it actually makes it quite hard to be empathetic for another group. And so something I think very powerful right now that's happening in the Jewish community is we've been walking around with and holding our trauma collectively for a long time and are being asked right now to affirm that at the very same time as saying the conversation we're having right now is about the Black community in America. Black Jews, Black Christians, Black Muslims, Black people of no faith. Like, it's really not about that. It's about getting beyond your own experience of trauma and actually identifying with somebody else's because we all know what pain feels like. Amen. Amen. I'm thankful that you brought it up. Like, I think the Black and Jewish story, like, they're just so enmeshed together. I guess just, there's no other way to say it. And so we hold dear to the story of Israel. As African-Americans, we do, because there's no other story that resonates with ours as much. Um, from enslavery in Egypt to slavery in America to 
to the exodus to you know the underground railroad whatever whatever metaphors and juxtapositions you want to make and when you look through history at, at what people group has walked alongside african americans the most and been there to try to help um with some caveats of course it has it has definitely been our jewish brothers and sisters and so like i think even in this present climate, um, we're just trying to figure out how how to make sure that one story, like I was telling my wife earlier, like no one wants to play the oppression Olympics to find out who's been the most oppressed. Like we don't have time for that. The goal is to, for all of those who know what it's like to be on the bottom, when we're in a situation where we're not the bottom anymore, that we never forget what it's like to be and that we center those who are on the margins. We center those who are on the bottom because we know that's the right thing to do. Um, the poem, when they came, first they came, right? Like that, that, that is the reminder that if we, if we get so consumed in our own trauma, when it's time and we need somebody speaking out for us, there won't be nobody left because we're speaking out for anybody else. And so I'm, I'm thankful, you know, I'm thankful for the relationship, you know, that, Black, especially even Black Christians, have really had with the Jewish community because it's it's, it's been rich. Uh, and I, but I think in this present moment, what we need is not just the "we see you and we're with you," but it's the "we understand and we can look back into our own situation, not to to only mourn our situation and lament it, but to say to show you what hope looks like on the other end." Hmm. Because my thing would be respond to say to you is that they are still coming for you. They've never stopped coming for you because power is a drug. And so um, we need to collectively be working. Power can only be taken. It'll never be relinquished. You know, what, like what, what gives you hope right now? Knowing all the ways that things could go sideways and wrong, like what, what gives you hope? Ultimately, what gives me hope is... Um, leaning into the local, the small, the individual. The, like when you look at things on a systemic level, which you have to, um, that's usually where your hopelessness comes in because things look so big. It looks so unmovable for us to, when we hear language like defund the police or police abolition, right? You have to have such a huge imagination to imagine the world with no police, right? But there's a very different thing when you can lean into a local community organizing a cleanup at a local store and get 20 people to come clean up the debris, board it up, pledge to come back tomorrow to help clean up on the inside, wash walls, you know, restrip floors, whatever they need to do, shampoo carpets, so that this thing can be open for our community again. And so my hope has been in the small everyday local connections that I'm making and seeing the heart and passion of people, despite all the anger, frustration, things that are still around us. You know, hearing you talking about even, uh, was it Tikkun Olam, right? Like that language really spoke to me because when you're putting the world back together, some pieces are gonna be really small and not be very, noticeable when a thing gets put back together and there'll be other pieces that are huge that we have to get back together if this thing's going to stand 
Um, I think your hope is when those little small pieces are actually starting to come together to make something larger, because they give you hope for the ability to put together, to put together the big things. Mm. A teacher of mine, uh, Ruth Messenger, says we cannot retreat to the convenience of being overwhelmed. It's good. You know, like systemic injustice at the level of the courts and law enforcement and education and healthcare and employment and housing. And they're all real. And yet what I hear you saying is don't think of your work as all of that. Think of your work as the little piece that you have within your control, because that actually contributes to the whole. That's right. If we all do our little piece, then we all begin to put the puzzle back together. No puzzle gets put together with just big pieces, right? Like a bunch of small pieces, and then you begin to see the picture. And uh, you get encouraged to finish the puzzle. The more small pieces you put together, and the more of the picture you begin to see. Mm-hmm. And really, the more people you have helping put it together, because honestly, like you could be really flummoxed by, you yep. know, yep. just a bunch of pieces that aren't fitting. And then somebody with new fresh eyes comes and looks at it and goes, I think this goes here. Yes, yes, yes. There's a line from the Mishnah that says, it's not your job to finish the work, but you also aren't allowed to ignore it. Yeah, that's good. You know? And that's the tension. Nobody's saying you have to save the world. You're not the Messiah. I mean, maybe you're the Messiah, but probably not. You're probably not the Messiah. Right. (laughs) Given that, so then what are you going to do? You don't have to do everything, but you got to do something. That's right. That's right. There's a freedom in that too. There's a freedom in that if you really lean into it. I got to do something, but I can't do everything. So I just do what I can Well, I think that you are doing more than your fair share, and I think you're a great source of hope for many people. And I'm honored to know you and to know your work and to learn more about your work and how we can be part of the piecing back together of this city for the benefit of everybody in it. And thank you for talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me, Rabbi Lizzie. I really appreciate your friendship. And uh, yeah, we're just getting started putting this thing back together. Amen. You've been listening to Contact Chai with me, Rabbi Lizzie, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago, which is a Jewish spiritual community here in Chicago and part of the Jewish Emergent Network. This show is produced by our fabulous team at Mishkan, including editorial oversight and production by Hannah Rehak, sound mixing by Victor Sanders, and administrative assistance from Zach Weinberg. Find out more about Mishkan Chicago at mishkanchicago.org, where you can also make a donation. And if you feel so inspired, please subscribe and leave a review. We want to hear from you.